you'll take your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Uh, there is a pew Bible in front of you. We would encourage you to follow along. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. We covered verses 21 through 26 uh, last week. However, we're going to read that as this is one section. It does subdivide, but it's important we see uh, the connection. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Father, thank you again for your word, uh, and we would ask that the Spirit of God would open every heart, that it will not be the words of a mere man, a mere sinner, It will be your spirit who takes his word and pierces and illumines and encourages the heart. And so, Father, may he do his work. May he he find within all of us pliable hearts, soft hearts, undistracted hearts, hearts that are not already thinking about a week ahead, and that we would be uh, focused on the great privilege we have and responsibility we have, knowing that there will be a day of judgment when we'll give an account for the truth that we have heard. And so, Lord, may we do so with a real sense of privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in the section that we're looking at today, verses 27 through 31, we could likely call this a postscript, a postscript of what Paul had just said um, in verses 21 through 26. Now, in verses 21 through 26, we won't go back and read that again. But what we see in verses 21 through 26 is Paul exploding out of the gate with the theme of Romans. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, uh, by grace alone. And in 21 verse 26, we, we find the theology of salvation. We find the great doctrinal truths of salvation. Uh, it's the battle cry of the Reformation. Uh, it was certainly the truth that uh, set free Martin Luther But in verses 21 through 26, we get words, theological truths such as justification, redemption, propitiation, righteousness. And of all the needs in the church today, it is a recovery of sound doctrine. It is a recovery of sound theological truth. And I'll talk more about that uh, shortly. But now as we move into the next uh, section, verse 27 through 31, what we see is, is really an application we find the power of the gospel as it relates to the law and its relationship to the law in harmonizing with the law. Now, Paul has been masterful, very methodical in his unfolding of Romans. He has with great precision and great detail from Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, brought Gentile and Jew alike under condemnation through the law. The law has has brought every Jew guilty before God because they boasted of the law but did not keep it. He's also brought every Gentile under condemnation by the law. Though they did not have it, it was written in their heart and thus they did have the law. And so no human being is guiltless before God. He has made himself known to us in creation and he has made known to us in his law given to the Jews in the oracles and given to the Gentiles by conscience. 
And so as a result, Paul has taken the law and used it to slay every single person. And now in chapter 3, in 21 through the end of the chapter, he now will show that there is a justification. There is a way to be guilt-free positionally, not by the law, but apart from the law. And we are going to see the glorious power of the gospel. Verses 21 through 31 of chapter 3 are the keys in unlocking Romans. They are the very foundational truths of the power of the gospel. Not only as it relates to the law, but as it relates to every single human being. And today, if you are ignorant of the gospel, Paul has got great news for you. He's going to show us how the gospel harmonizes with the law, how the gospel destroys any hopes of obtaining favor with God by works, and then he's going to show us the freedom that comes knowing that you are justified by faith alone in Christ. Now, as we look at this, uh, this section, uh, verse 27 through 31, you're going to see a shift And this is the way Paul always does it, and this is the way we always should do it too in our evangelism, in our Christian living. In verse 21 through 26, it's all God-centered. It's all about what God has done. It's all about who God is. There's not the personal application. Paul has separated mankind, and God stands alone in the wisdom of the gospel In verse 21 through 26. It is a God-centeredness that stands without any application to us. And one of the great dangers we face in modern Christianity is we try to make it all about us. We try to make it all about us and we're easily offended. We're easily uh, set aside and we're easily looking into the Bible and looking, well, what's in it for me? The Bible is not about us. Now, certainly the Bible points to Christ, who is uh, our Savior, but you can't enter to the Bible and go to the Bible and look at it as some self-help book or look at, look at it as some book that, uh, in, in case of emergency, break glass and pull it out. The Bible is, a, is the revelation of Jesus Christ from start to finish. And the first thing we need to do in understanding the Bible is to get ourselves out of it. So that we can see it for what it is. It is God's revelation of his love. And as his intent to redeem a people for his own possession. Genesis 1.1 starts out in the beginning God. Not in the beginning man. And it's important that we understand that nothing in the Christian life is about us. And the minute we start focusing on ourselves. We are missing Christianity. And so what we find here in 21 through 26, Paul masterfully focuses the gospel on who God is and what God has done. And then in verse 26 following, and Abraham will become the example in chapter 4, it's applied to us, us as individuals and corporately as the church. And so keep that in mind. When you read your Bible, it's not about you first. It's about God. It's about Christ. And then the application of Christ to you in the context of what you're discovering about the greatness of who God is. So what we want to look at in this section, we want to look at the power of the gospel. Look at verse 27. 27. And the first thing that we see is that Paul is resorting back to something that he's already done. In chapter 2, when the Jew was boasting of having the oracles... And the Jew was boasting about the, uh, the ethnic privilege that they had. Paul brought them to their knees by saying, Oh yes, you're boasting of the oracles? Well, you are guilty because you judge others by a law that you're not even keeping. And so Paul, in verse uh, 27 and following, he would once again bring forth a battery of rhetorical questions. It's like he's back in the dialogue with someone And the format and the way it's unfolding is he is talking to the Jew. He's talking to the Jew, again, who may be wanting to boast, not of the law now, but of good works. And what we see in the power of the gospel, beginning in verse 27, is that the gospel removes any ground for human boasting. The gospel removes any ground for human boasting. Justification or being made right with God or having favor with God or reconciled with God is not a work of human effort. And you know that. But you need to be reminded of that. 
27 says, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By law of works? Question. No, but by the law of faith. Now remember what uh, is the composition of this church. It's probably 60% Gentile and 40% of Jews returning back after they were kicked out of Rome. So then we have the tension in there of Jewish Christians who may want to mix a little law and Gentiles who have no clue what they're talking about. And so you had this potential of disunity in the church. And you know where disunity occurs in the church? is when pride gets in the way and we lose the centrality of Jesus Christ. There will never be tension among Christians when Christ is centered and his glory is sought above all things. And so Paul will come into this section And he will first say that the gospel, the centrality of Jesus Christ, it destroys human boasting. In Romans chapter 2 verse 23, he had already mentioned the Jews were boasting about the law. And he says, why are you boasting? You dishonor God by breaking the law. And here's the point we want to get about the gospel, you know, destroying boasting. Or the gospel saying that there's nothing you can do to gain favor with God. We want to understand that there is a contrast between works and faith. There's a contrast. Works is self-exalting. Faith is self-denouncing. Works builds up what you believe is on your account. Faith knows you have nothing in your account. And so it's important we see what Paul is doing here. He's saying, you have no right to boast whatsoever because all your works, all your works will add up to nothing but filthy rags. And that there's absolutely no way that all your religion and all your efforts to be right with God will pass the bar of his justice. And all of us, all of us at one time or another have been in conversation with people. That says, you know, I'm, well, I'm basically a good person. Or you may get the person who is greatly religious. That's attributing all their good works. And they got this, this imaginary scale. That they're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ someday. And they got this, he's got this scale. And they're going to put out, he's going to put out all these good works that you, you've done. And it, it just weighed it down. So you may be thinking, hey, I'm looking pretty good. And then all of a sudden, uh, all the bad stuff go there, and you hope that it doesn't tip the scale. That may sound like a little levity, but there are a ton of people that are religious today that are trusting their good works, are trusting their adherence to conduct, uh, trusting their morality to get them to heaven. And you know what they lack? Assurance. Assurance. Why? Tell me how much is enough. Tell me when there's ever enough. That's going to justify you before God. And Paul would look at the Jews and say. You have no reason to boast. It's because there's no works. There's no about of religiosity. There's no about of good effort. That can make you right with God. Donald Bar- Barnhouse said this. And it's so true. He said quote. Man is almost incurably addicted. To the principle of doing something. Towards his own salvation. End quote. We are religious by nature, by creation, is that we are religious. I know we were in conversation the last uh, day or so, and someone brought up the, uh, the topic of atheists. You say, well, no, this person professes to be an atheist. And my position is that there's no such thing as an atheist. And, you know, we can argue that point. People do say, well, I'm an atheist. Well, what happens when they, they, hit, their, uh, they, they hit their finger with a hammer or, or, a, or a sub or something? More often than not, they use the Lord's name in vain. Or they'll say, God damn this. Or they'll use this little OMG, oh my God. You know what that's slang for? That is slang. That is blasphemous. That is blasphemous. OMG, that's blasphemous. And you'll have unbelievers say, I don't believe in God. But how many times do you hear them use Jesus Christ as a vain swear word? Where does that come from? Well, you're an atheist. You don't, well, it's because God has written eternity in their heart so that they know. They may not recognize it, but they know. And so when you look at this here about religion, there is a religion of works. Why? Because man is wired by nature to be a religious person. And so when you look at these, the, these people and they claim that there is no God 
And you can tell them that their name is in the Bible. It's called fool. And 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 because it says that the Bible says that the fool has said there is no God. We know that in a psalm. But when you look at the atheist who says these things, and the very witness of their conduct and their speech gives evidence that there is a religion of the heart that is written in them and wired in them by creation. And one thing which is so true, when you, when you are engaged in someone who professes this lack of religion or lack of a knowledge of a God, you can tell them this. And you can say it with compassion. I hope you do with tears. Is you look at this person and say, there will never be an unbeliever the moment after that person dies. There are no unbelievers in eternity. If you're an unbeliever today and you die, you are now a believer. But you will not be a believer that knows the shepherd as your good shepherd. We have a good example here. I want to give you a couple examples of this uh, boasting that Paul says is excluded. You cannot earn favor with God uh, by good works. That's what verse 27 says. Uh, by the law of works, no, but by the law of faith. Faith, works, works is what you do. Faith is what God has already done. Always remember this, Christianity is not a Christianity of do. It is a, Christ, it is a religion of done. It's what is done that produces what we do. Luke 18, verse 19, don't turn to it, but we have the classic example of boasting. And Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And he treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, religious. I give tithes of all that I get, religious. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's an exercise of faith. And he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who attempts to exalt himself in the eyes of God by good works will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself by childlike faith will be exalted. That's the biblical example of how works doesn't get it. And that the gospel destroys boasting. It humbles us so that we will not rely upon ourselves. Now, friends, I want to tell you something. You have a struggle with this. It's because we battle against this, even as Christians. Is that this is not something that's eradicated once you become a Christian. That's why Jesus says, narrow is the way, few there be to find it. Because you've got to get to the end of yourself where you're absolutely convinced. If Christ doesn't save you, you're, de- you're doomed. And that's a hard place to get. And it's a hard place to stay. Because we're so performance-driven in our culture. I mean, look how many times that you're in a conversation with someone you just met, and you're within five minutes of the conversation, and one of the first questions is, what do you do? That's because our identity is wrapped up in our performance. And you've got to be careful as a Christian. Your identity is wrapped up in performance, but your identity is wrapped up in the performance of Jesus Christ, not you. Well, here's an example of church history. Someone who relied on works and Did he ever rely on works? It was John Wesley. And you may know a lot about John Wesley. Wesley was an ordained minister in the Church of England for 10 years before he grasped the gospel. During that decade, Wesley was pious and active. Rising at 4 a.m., he prayed and read scripture for two hours. This is an unsaved man. He ministered in prisons and hospitals and taught widely until late at night. He was also self-righteous, self-absorbed, and unpleasant. I have found that religious people who are striving to gain God's favor by works, it's not long into it, they're pretty unpleasant. Now, that's, I, know I, have, I know a lot of other Christians, at times I'm probably one of them, that Christians who are unpleasant as well. The point I want to get at is that Wesley laboring hard. You know what he didn't have? He didn't have joy. He didn't have the freedom of sins forgiven. The story goes on. While carrying Wesley to a pastoral appointment in Savannah, Georgia in 1735, his ship encountered a great storm. 
Waves broke over the deck and wind shredded the sails until the little ship seemed ready to sink. Wesley had no assurance of salvation. How could he? He didn't have salvation. So he was terrified that night that he might die. Despite his works, death frightened him. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort and guide me. Elsewhere on the ship, a group of Moravians sang hymns in the middle of the storm. Wesley approached and asked how they could sing when they might die that very night. The Moravians replied, if the ship goes down, we will go up to be with the Lord forever. Wesley wondered, how could they know that? What more have, have they done that I have not done? Works. Paul says there's no boasting in works. Mr. Wesley, there's no boasting in works. Wesley had believed in Jesus after a fashion, but since he also relied on his works, he suffered doubts. Friends, there is no trusting in Jesus plus. It's not Jesus and. It's not works and faith. It's faith that produces works. And they will always be present. True works. James would write extensively about that. True works, undefiled religion before God is that we widow widows and orphans in their affliction and that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. True faith produces works. Works will never produce faith. And thus, this was Wesley. Well, Wesley later wrote in his journal, I came to convert the heathen, but who shall convert me? After two years of, of worthless ministry in the colony, worthless from that, this standpoint, its governor ordered him to return to England in 1737. After his return, Wesley attended an informal worship service where a man read Martin Luther's writings on Romans. And as Wesley listened, he realized that he had relied on works, not Christ alone. Again, he wrote in his journal about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley was known to afflict himself with excessive self-examination, but he understood justification by faith that day, and it brought him peace. Though he did not perfectly hold true to the doctrine that granted assurance, nevertheless, he had been changed by justification by faith. And so Paul would tell us that the gospel, it removes any ground for human boasting. And, and let, me, let me just look at this practically. If we can gain God's favor by good works... And we stand before him in glory. That's going to be a time of shared glory. And God has made it clear, I will share my glory with no one. No one. So when you stand before the Lord Jesus, your plea is simply him. And any good work that you produced, it wasn't to gain God's favor. It's because you have God's favor and he's doing that work through you. And so the gospel destroys boasting. And it should humble every one of us to understand that there's not a single thing we can do to gain God's favor. Truly, the gospel removes any ground for human boasting because justification is not a work, a work of human effort. Well, let's move on. Look at verse 28. Not only do we find that, that the gospel destroys the boasting of the law or the boasting of good works, we also find that the gospel produces a justification that is through grace alone as a free gift. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Apart from. Now you have to link verse 28 uh, to verse 24. And we are justified by his grace as a gift. So here's the dilemma we face. If we can't earn God's favor, if we can't gain salvation through our works, then what do we do? Unless God intervenes, unless he comes with an imputation, unless he comes with giving a gift, then we are doomed. We have absolutely no hope whatsoever. And yet, what has he done? He's come in the glories of the gospel. 
And we are justified by his grace as a gift. Now, when we talk about justification by faith, and I just want to stress this for a second. It's so easy to, to, to study theology just to get knowledge. It's so easy to study doctrine just to get knowledge. And maybe even to study doctrine just so that you can win debates. Be very careful that the knowledge you gain doesn't get stuck up here. Make sure the theological understanding of justification by faith, of redemption, of propitiation, of righteousness, make sure that you understand theology is not to stay here. It's to move its way 18 inches down, and it's to inflame your heart. Theology is designed to inflame your heart with love. Holy love for the God who is the object of all doctrine. Who is the object of theology. And Paul, in, in, in the mixture here of sound theology, which will unfold throughout Romans, he is quick to make us know and remind us that all we are, justification by faith, is because of the benevolent heart of God. It's only because of a gift. Of a gift. We're going to see that again in Romans chapter 5. But it's important that you see this as a gift. Because when God gives you a gift, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't take it back. He doesn't take it back. When he says that you are right before me because of my son, and you trust that, and trust that alone, then you are forever my child, despite the fact that you're going to have temper tantrums, despite that you're going to rebel, despite the fact that you may be a sheep who looks at that other pasture and you think it's really good and it's really burnt grass, you're going to have those periods in your Christian life where you're not the most obedient sheep. And you're going to have those periods in your Christian life where you are a spiritual infant and you're whining and crying because your will is not being done. And you know what God does in that? He still remembers that you're his child. And he still remembers that you've been justified, not because of your works, but because of his grace. The gospel destroys boasting because justification cannot be achieved by human effort. Secondly, justification cannot be uh, anything but a free gift of grace. This really struck home to John Bunyan. Well, Bunyan read John 3.24, it was as if he heard God saying to his deeply troubled and guilt-stricken soul. Read, read the book, Grace Abounding. And, and get a hold of what Bunyan went through. And if you don't want to read that, but you want uh, knowledge, and you want to know the resident expert of John Bunyan, see Gene Messier. He'll tell you everything about John Bunyan you need to know. But here's what Bunyan said. God said to his deeply troubled, guilt-stricken soul, Sinner, thou think that because of thy sins and infirmities, I cannot save thy soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look, and not upon thee. And I will deal with thee according as I am pleased with him. And that, my friends, is shouting ground for every believing sinner. Is that when God looks at you and says, you can't boast by works, verse 27. When he says, verse 24, and he says in 28 that it's all of my free grace. You know what that does? It liberates you. It brings you to the point of freedom that you've never experienced before because you're now reconciled with a God that you could never be reconciled unless he took the initiative. And there's no reason why we can't walk with joy. Do you know what the, the key to, to living in joy is? Is to having a sound theology of the justification by faith in your head, in your heart, that changes you. Justification by faith is the gateway to joy. Because you know that regardless of your, of your conduct, you stand right before this God. But that does not create a loose life. And if you say, oh, praise the Lord, I am right with God, I'm justified, and then you go live like you want, you're not justified. It will always lead to a change of desire, a change of direction, a change of conduct. Not because you have to, but because you get to and you want to. Another example of this. When Martin Luther discovered God's gracious verdict of righteousness pronounced upon the believer, he stated it was the happiest day in his life. Like Bunyan, Luther battled with this. You know the story of the thunderstorm. He battled with this. 
And, and he was not pleased with God at all. Luther went on, the day that he discovered the verdict of righteousness by faith, he said, it was the happiest day in my life. My view of the Bible changed. Scripture became a book of light and joy. That's what will happen to you. You won't be able to get enough of this book. Now, I know some people say, well, I'm not a reader. Well, I, you need to be careful with that. You need to be careful with that statement. Because God gave us a book. He gave us a book. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm in with audio books. I got that. I mean, there, there are people that listen to audiobooks, and that's fine. That's good. And, and podcasts and, and, and listen to preaching, all that's good too. But you cannot substitute daily intakes of the Word of God. If you want to know the God of this book, then you've got to be in the book that reveals the God of this book. And justification by faith is revealed through the pages of Scripture that point us to the justifier, and that being the Lord Jesus. So then we've seen in verse 27 and 28... Now, we see the gospel removes any ground of human boasting. And so if you're looking inside of yourself and you're trying to think, how can I gain favor with God? I guess I must take up religion. Maybe I'll try this. Dismiss all that. And simply run to Christ as you are. Because that's the only type of people that he will take. Come unto me, all ye that labor or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly at heart and I will give you rest. If you know that you can't fix this problem you have with your God on your own, you've just qualified for the gospel. In fact, that's the only people that qualify for the gospel. And so if you want to continue to try to be religious to gain God's favor, you will never gain assurance. And you will be like John Wesley. You will exhaust yourself and you will be fearful. And you will not have joy because you've yet to discover that God destroys boasting by the gospel. Well, there's something else. Let's move on to verses 29 through 30. In the glorious power of the gospel, we find that the gospel is both exclusive and inclusive. Now, I know that word inclusive is a pretty powerful, or I should say a pretty popular word today in our culture. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about the inclusiveness of the abomination and all this stuff that's going on in this sexual revolution that's underway. We're talking about inclusiveness when it comes to the invitation of the gospel. Look at verse 29 and 30. First, we see the gospel is exclusive. It stands alone. Or is he God, is he God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Paul continues his argument with these Jews or with someone And his dialogue is simply this. All the things that you say, I'm going to destroy those arguments. And I'm telling you right now that he is not only the God of the Jews, but he's the God of the Gentiles. He says, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And it's interesting how he does this. He he actually plays to the monotheism of the Jews. He actually is talking about one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But in regards to God being one, it only makes sense that he would also have only one way to be reconciled. Is that if he's a a single God, which he is manifested in three distinct persons, he also only has one way of reconciliation. There are not many roads to, to God. All religions do not lead to God. And you can't have fellowship with those who say there is many paths to God. There is not. The gospel is extremely exclusive. But what Paul is not saying is that the Jews are a special group of people above the Gentiles. He's saying no. Verse 29, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. The Lutheran scholar Dlinsky said this, quote, Since there is one God and the same for all, he cannot have two ways of declaring man righteous, by the law through the Jews and by faith through the Gentiles. It doesn't work. Because if you try that, then what you've done is you've jettisoned the gospel. And that means that there are multiple ways. I don't know what the Gentile way would be. And the Jews' way, we've already seen, that fails. Linsky would say, God cannot have two ways of declaring man righteous, one for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. And so, yes, the gospel is exclusive. And we have to safeguard that, friends. 
We have to be willing to look into the world and say there's no other way. There's one way. But friends, we have to do that with compassion. We got to do that with conviction, but we got to do that with compassion. And when we look at the religious person who's trying to gain whatever the religion be, trying to gain God's favor, we must look at them with tears and say, please, listen to me. There's only one way. And this isn't my message. This is God's message. Please, plead. Plead with the sinner. Plead with the unbeliever. Show them the truth and what Jesus says. Unless you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. We must safeguard the exclusivity of the gospel. Paul would say there's one God, and that means by implication there is only one way of salvation. In, pre- in preaching in a sermon, in a sermon um, to the Sadducees in Acts chapter 4, Peter would be so bold to say there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we can't compromise that. We can't have people that say, and popular people that say, well, I do believe that Jesus is the only way, but that's, that's what I believe. And I, paraphrase, I just paraphrase, paraphrase Joe Osteen. Is that you can't say, well, I believe that Jesus is the only way, you know, but I'm not the judge. Is it maybe... You can't do that because you've compromised the whole thing. Is you gotta be you gotta be exclusive with the gospel. Jesus says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through me. You do not have to be a Greek scholar to understand the exclusivity in Jesus' words. He says, if you're gonna come to the Father and be reconciled with your creator, then you gotta come through me. And when you come through me, it's a narrow door. There's no room for your baggage of good works. That door is so close, so narrow that you can't bring your good works and get in there. You don't check baggage of good works to heaven. You come by one way, and you come by Christ, Christ alone. Or you don't come at all. And we have to boldly say that. I was thinking of a nautical illustration. I, I kinda, I'm fond to the nautical world. I told you this before, it's because I know no other life but that, so. But I was thinking that as you look out over the landscape of humanity, it's like these all, all lost people outside of Christ, they're lost at sea. They're lost at sea in the storms of relativism and humanism. And they're being tossed to and fro by the lies of the devil, the lies of, of human philosophy, the lies of religion. And they're just being tossed about. Just. But then they look over the horizon and you see this, this rocky island with a lighthouse on it. And it's beaming through the storm. And all of a sudden the sinner lost its sea of relativism and humanism. They see perhaps hope. They see the, this beacon that's guiding them to perhaps a safe haven. And sure enough, as they get closer, it is the lighthouse of truth. It is the solid rock of Christ Jesus. And they find themselves throwing them upon this rock, upon this lighthouse, and they're safe. And they're delivered from all the seas of the world that, that, that goes against Christ. And as I built this, this illustration, and if it is any good, I'm sorry, but that's what I got. Is it, the, the reality of it is, is that we are that people. We are lost in the seas of lies. We are lost in the seas of relativism. And Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And that friend, that friend is the exclusivity of the gospel. Where Paul would say, as he unfolds Romans, one way. One God means one way. And that way is open, which leads to the second thing about the gospel. Look at verse 29 and 30. 30 in particular. There's not only the exclusive nature of the gospel, there's the inclusive invitation of the gospel. Verse 29. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, then what do we have here? We have the invitation to all. 
Jew and Gentile alike, come. It says, we, we get the words from Jesus. I quoted Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus would cry out on the day of the feast, whosoever is thirsty, come. We, find, we have Jesus saying, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There is this wonderful inclusion. If you are here today and you think, I have sinned so much. I have denied the gospel for so long. I got good news. You are not left out. You can come and you can come right now as you are. And by the way, that's the only way we can come. There was a man, an older gentleman, he was kind of hard of hearing. His name was Mr. Klein. Mr. Klein was discouraged, defeated, and convinced that life just wasn't worth living because no one cared for him. He walked past the church one Sunday evening when services were in progress. As the congregation sang, he caught the strains of the familiar hymn, Saved by Grace Alone, This is All My Plea. Jesus died for all mankind, and Jesus died for me. His hearing, though not very good, when he heard this congregation sing, Jesus died for all mankind, he thought they sang, Jesus died for old man Klein. And he said, why? Well, that's me. I'm old man Klein. Stopping in his tracks, he turned and entered the small auditorium. There he heard the simple message of the gospel as the minister presented the good news that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, even Mr. Klein. Friends, the doctrine of sovereign election, which is true, does not negate evangelism. In fact, the doctrine of sovereign election enhances and fuels evangelism. We share the gospel with everyone. And that's the mission of this church, is we share, and that's the mission of every Christian, we share the gospel with everyone. We don't share the gospel so that people will get saved. We share the gospel because we're commanded to share the gospel. God saves sinners through the preaching of the gospel. My responsibility and your responsibility is to preach the gospel. God's responsibility is to save the sinner. But we are responsible not to be exclusive and have this this pious arrogance about us. We are to realize that the gospel, as Paul would say, he is the God of the Gentiles and the God of the Jews, and justification by faith is for all. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And God will indeed save sinners. And finally, we'll close with this. Look at verses 30 and 31 again. We see that the gospel removes any ground for human boasting. Works won't get it done, so stop. The gospel is exclusive and inclusive. Exclusive, there's only one way. Inclusive is that anyone can come. And finally, the gospel harmonizes with the law. The gospel is not in contradiction to the law. And it's important we know that. You cannot effectively preach the gospel without preaching the law. They're inseparable. And the first thing we see, look at verse uh, 30. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we, not, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul is arguing, saying, well, some would say, since, the God, since God justifies by faith apart from the law, that means the law is obsolete. That's not true. In fact, the law is what establishes the need for the gospel. That's why it harmonizes with the gospel. How do you know you're a sinner? Well, you just, I just feel like a sinner. Well, I do too. But how do you know you're a sinner? Well, Galatians says the law became a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Paul would say in Romans chapter uh, 6, uh, I'm sorry, in, in chapter uh, 3, he would say that does faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? No. And he would go on and say that by, by the law, I knew what sin was. Romans 7, 7. For I had not known what it is to covet, and the law had not said, you shall not covet. Romans 3.20, since the law comes knowledge of sin, how do you know you're a sinner? Because you stand at Mount Sinai and you get crushed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not dishonor your, your parents. I just gave you three and all of us have broken all three. There's seven more. The fact is the, the, the gospel doesn't make the law obsolete. 
The law points to the gospel. The law shows us that we are in a bad, bad way. And the gospel is that lighthouse on the rock pointing us to the Lord Jesus. So we see then that the gospel harmonizes the law by establishing the need for the gospel. And finally, verse 31, by no means, on the contrary, we uphold or establish the law. The second thing about the gospel harmonizing the law is that the gospel honors the law by fulfilling all its demands. What are the demands of the law? Two, number one, the law demands perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. And God will not grade us on a curve. And God will not allow us a pass. You must obey. I, I remember numerous times of basketball preaching to, uh, uh, to, to our friends. And, and, and I've said, you can be saved and go to heaven without Jesus Christ. Now, don't, don't throw me out of here. I'm not heretical. This is and this is the requirement. From birth, in your thoughts, in your speech... In your actions, from birth till death, you have kept every one of God's commands without error. Do all that and you're in. Why? Because you fulfilled the law. Who can do that? One person. The Lord Jesus. And so the complete obedience which is demanded by the law, it's harmonized by the gospel. Why? Because of the act of obedience of Christ. What did Christ do throughout his life? He fulfilled the law. He obeyed the law to the very T. And this is one of the beauties of the double imputation. Is that I get credited. If you're a believing uh, sinner today. You get credited with Christ's obedience. He gives us his obedience to the law. Why would Jesus have to go on the earth. And live on the earth for 30 plus years. Why not just be born in the manger. And then just die as the propitiation. He had to fulfill the law. He had to fulfill the law because I'm not off the hook. Just because I can't obey the the law does not relieve me of the responsibility to obey the law. That's what makes us sinners. And so the gospel harmonizes the, um, uh, the law by, number one, is that through Jesus, and always look at the law, look at it through Jesus, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law And the law and the prophets bear testimony of me is that when you look to Jesus, see him as obeying for you. And that you get his credit for all of his obedience. You know what happens when you're born again and you see that? Is you start to delight in the law of God. In Romans 7, you long to obey the law of God. You want to obey the law of God. That's one of the fruit of new birth. But the law also has a second requirement. If it's broken, it has, a, it has a penalty that must be paid. The law will not look over the penalty. If you break the law, you are subject to death. You are subject to the wrath of God. And you can't look at God and say, well, I have broken it, but I'm going to try better. Just let me start all over again. No, once you break it, you break it. And, and if that isn't enough, by nature, you, you're born this way. So you have the thundering penalty of the law hanging over you and that's the glory of the gospel harmonizing with the law because you can look to the cross of Christ and you can say, there's my penalty. There's my propitiation. There's my righteousness. There's my redemption. And so Paul in in, in Romans chapter 3 verse 21 through through 31 is that he is now unfolding the riches of the gospel. And Lord willing, next week, as we roll into chapter 4, we're going to see Abraham becomes the example. The example of the gospel. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, we must ask a couple questions. And we'll close with this. Number one, are we trusting our works to get us to heaven? Or are we trusting Christ alone? And Christian, it's a good, it's a good uh, test to ask yourself. What are you trusting right now? Not a decision you made 15 years ago. What, right now, this very moment, what are you trusting? Are you trusting your good works? Or are you trusting Christ? And it can't be works and Jesus. It's either Jesus or works. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're trying to gain God's favor by good works, I hope that you see that that is an, an exercise in futility. And that you must run to Christ and run to Him. And if you need help with that, there's, there's plenty of people here that would help you to do that. Don't let pride keep you from. Don't let pride keep you from the only means of coming, being reconciled with God. So that's the first thing. Was we've got to come to grips. What are we trusting? 
And, and the second thing, and I think it's so important, is that we have got to grasp with greater urgency the exclusivity of Christ, of the gospel, and the inclusive nature of the gospel. The exclusivity, that means we must, not, we must be apologetic in defending the gospel in a culture, a Christian culture, that is allowing for too much looseness. And the second thing, inclusiveness. Friends, we've got to be telling people about Christ. We have got to be about the business of sharing the gospel. Don't, it's, not, it's not up to you to produce the results, but it is up to us to share the gospel. And if this is such good news, the greatest of news ever, which it is, how can we remain silent? How can we be silent when we have been given ears to hear, eyes to see, the only way to be reconciled with our God. And that is through the glorious gospel that destroys boasting, that includes all, that harmonizes the law. What a glorious truth that God has given us. May we be quick to embrace it and quick to proclaim it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the wonderful, wonderful truths of the gospel. We thank you that you have leveled us in our pride to show us that there's no room for human boasting. And we honor you and thank you for the liberating exclusiveness of the gospel. That we don't have to look for multiple truths. There's one. And that you've given us the ability to see it and embrace it. And Lord, may we have a heart for those that are in the seas of of relativism. Sinners drifting in a world that knows not truth. May we be those people that take the inclusive invitation of Christ to the world. And Father, help us to embrace the wonders of what the gospel has done in the wisdom of fulfilling all the demands of the law, its fulfillment in total obedience, and its payment of the penalty that we were due because of the broken law. Lord, we thank you for the privilege, and we ask your blessings upon our fellowship meal, that we would enjoy the time together, we'd get to know one another, that you would foster this, this family atmosphere that we so long to have in our church. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.